This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the middle of a pandemic. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and he's a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, I'm not in the room with you, but I'm always glad to see you, and I'm watching you over Zoom. Welcome. David, likewise. It's uh, it's good to be with you from a distance. We, we are getting together, and we're doing this social distancing, and so it may sound a little different than the normal audio that you hear, but that's just because we're trying to keep everybody safe. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod pod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisEffectPod at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about three topics. They all relate to COVID-19 in one way or another. But in particular, at the end of the conversation, we're going to be continuing our discussion about the sacraments. And we're going to be talking about the sacrament of anointing the sick or extreme unction, where I'm not even sure what it's called. And so we'll get into all that when we when we are later in the show. But for now... Dan, how have you been holding up the last few weeks? David, I am doing okay. It has been a very surreal experience, as all of our listeners can attest, and I know you and your your family also can relate. I feel very fortunate that I live in a community where I have regular contact with my brothers that were able to pray together uh, as of now, continue to have meals together because nobody is exhibiting you know symptoms of being sick at this point that we're able to celebrate Eucharist together. I know we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later in the program. And so we've been keeping a lot of folks in prayer, especially those who are not able to have access to the sacraments physically. 
And so, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about uh, folks, including my family, friends, uh, you and your family, uh, all sorts of folks. And it's been, on the one hand, nice in some ways, if you can say this event is is nice, and that a silver lining has, has been a kind of a general pause. Now, there's a low-grade anxiety, of course, or sometimes a higher-grade anxiety, depending on the moment, as I experience it. But, but there has been a great opportunity to connect with friends and family and through technology like cell phones and Zoom and Skype and Google Hangout and Facebook and all these other things. I know you've been taking advantage of a lot of that yourself. And, uh, you know, maybe we can direct our listeners to check some of that out. So I've been I've been feeling very fortunate about that. It's also a very scary time. I mean, it's it's really really extraordinary. I find myself just thinking at various points like is this real? I mean, we we don't have any way of making sense of this. So, yeah, so that's that's kind of how I'm doing, generally well. Um, but, yeah, how are you, doing? Well, I'm, I'm good, but I, I want to ask a couple of other questions. You're a long-distance runner. Have you been able to keep running, or has that stopped? Like, how, how do you handle the level of activity that you normally do and, Dan, the level of travel? Because you, yeah. you travel <laughs> more than any three human beings I've ever met. And I just I, – how is all of that affecting you? Because you've, you've gone from, I imagine, from traveling a lot and running a lot to really restricting both of those things. How how has that transition been for you? Well, so there. You're, well, thanks for asking. Um, they're handled a little bit differently. So the running I can continue to do and to do safely. That's one of the things that the public health officials have made clear is that going for walks, going for a run, in some cases too, even a bike ride, provided that you're maintaining the social distancing protocols, you know, you're six feet away from people and so forth, that actually isn't a problem. For those who have been registered for formal races where you'd have thousands or tens of thousands of people together running, those events have all been postponed or canceled. Um, I didn't have any actually in the spring schedule because I was supposed to be traveling quite a, quite a lot, actually, as, as you noted. All of that has come to a grinding halt, which is interesting. It is very different from my normal way of being in the world. On the other hand, again, if I dare say, you know, a slight silver lining has been an opportunity to focus on some other things at, at, the, at the moment. Again, it's not easy. It's not like this is, I keep reminding myself and, and many of my friends and colleagues that this is not a retreat. This is not a sabbatical. This is not a vacation. And, and everyone can kind of feel that, I'm sure, in their own way, psychologically, emotionally, physically. And so I feel that too. But it's allowed me to to pause and to reflect and to, you know, do different things than I would when I'm when I'm on the road as much as I usually am. So the running has been very helpful. I, I run pretty early in the morning and that's been part of my kind of daily routine that helps give structure in a otherwise chaotic time. And so, you know, I'm out there before sunrise running along Lake Michigan and there are probably like this morning, for instance, I think I encountered maybe half a dozen other people in the course of an hour. So, and of course everyone's keeping their distance. So it's it's a it's a fairly safe and I'm very thankful for that activity and as long as I'm healthy and as long as it's safe I'll, I'll continue to do that. Yeah, how about you? How's the coping been going? Well, so I have been self-isolated and Illinois was one of the earlier states to go into kind of lockdown protocols. And so I have I'm going on 2 weeks of being in the house. And the first week, and I was saying this to you before we began taping, the first week, because my wife's parents live here in our neighborhood as well, the kids would go over to their house and do their online schoolwork because everything had gone remote. But now we are under a shelter-in-place order, and that means that 
We are not traveling to the grandparents' house the way that we were. We are doing what you're saying. We're trying to meet the Kira's parents for walks, my wife's parents for walks here in the neighborhood and things like that, and keeping social distance while we do that. But, you know, I I will say that for me, as a person with kind of high-level anxieties, my wife and I have had a lot of conversations about how this is triggering me and what this is doing to some of my thoughts about kind of stability and safety in the world. A lot of what I reflect on when I think about my own recovery is my history with kind of invisible threats. And in my home, those invisible threats were often familial, but then I externalized them into anxieties about things like nuclear radiation and also germ and microbe infection when I was younger. And a lot of those fears have resurfaced in the last two weeks. And I'm, I'm okay. I'm well supported. And I, I have, I'm lucky that I have like 40 years of recovery in all of this, but, uh, but it has been an anxious time. And there have been some moments that have been tense with my family that I have amplified the tension because I haven't been able to get a handle on some of my own junk. And I'm very, very lucky that I have a family, both my wife and my kids understand that the dynamics of my recovery. And so they've been very supportive even when I have kind of lost my cool in the midst of this. All things considered, I'm feeling good, but this is not a good time for me or for anybody. And certainly my my stress is a is a very small manifestation where others have real threats to be dealing with right now, threats of, of being put out of their houses, threats of economic instability. I feel very blessed that I don't have those threats right now, but I'm, I have been trying to concentrate my prayer life and to take my anxiety and, and to make me, you know, in my prayer, have empathy for those that are facing those kinds of precarities. And that actually has been very helpful to me too. That's really good to hear. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking about that. I'm especially um, mindful of you and your family, but also a number of other friends of mine and their and their families too. Um, you know, I, I suppose it's a blessing and a curse to you know have the great gift of of children in your life, but also the curse comes in the fact that usually you have a break with work and they have school and everyone goes their own way for a significant portion of the day. And uh, the way that I keep thinking somewhat comically, somewhat tragically about each day is that, you know, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, there's that kind of like, you know, with the the black screen and it's like day two or something like that, or Thursday. And like, the madness increases every day with every one of those transitions. That's kind of how I feel. I don't know if that resonates with you as well. It is. I, it is. And in my household, the way that we have dealt with that is we have a very explicit, well, we have family meetings, first of all, where we talk a lot of this stuff out and we try and anticipate this stuff and the kids are included in the family meetings, but also we kind of have a standing rule that everybody has to listen very carefully to what other people are actually asking for. And an example of that is we're trying to eat down leftovers and there was one portion of baked ziti left and both of my kids wanted to eat it. And then we let my wife and I let them negotiate and my, my son relented and said, okay, Maggie, my daughter, you can have the baked ziti. And then Maggie turned around and heated up the baked ziti and set it out for Beckett. And she said, I'm going to give this to Beckett. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You've got to actually ask Beckett whether he wants it because he's he's agreed to let you have it. Don't just assume that he still wants it. Maybe now he wants the cheeseburger or something. You actually have to talk to him. And so learning for all of us, and that's not just the kids, but the adults also, learning to actually stop and say, wait, what do you actually need 
right now. What would actually make you happy? Don't let me just assume that and let me assume that I know what's best for you, but let me actually ask you what's best for you. That has become front and center as we've all been kind of up in each other's business. The less that we assume and the more that we actually listen, the smoother the days go. And that helps to keep that crazy that you're talking about at bay. I don't know if that's helpful to anybody else, but that's certainly something that has worked in our house. I'm sure that that, <laughs> that sounds very, very good to me. I mean, that's, that's excellent advice for anyone, frankly, um, including a house of six grown men in religious life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Well, and I'm, I'm very intrigued by what you said earlier about the fact that you're still continuing to do some of the activities that you had been doing with your confreres there in the Franciscan house that you're in. And so I want to get into that and talk to you about that. I guess just one other question before we take our break. And, you you know, you are a priest as well as being my friend. And I think sometimes the imagination of people is that priests have some kind of special understanding or special wisdom for moments like this. And so I will simply ask you, for those of us who have been flailing about, do you have any special wisdom for me or for listeners at times like this, for lay people, about how we're supposed to order our lives since you live in some ways a more ordered life than than others do? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I appreciate the sentiment. And I think part of the kind of the kind of grounding response is to say that there is no magic, as it were, you know, and this is something that the church teaches in Lumen Gentium, that by virtue of the baptism, all, you know, all the baptized, all Christian women and men are, you know, equally holy and called to holiness and struggle with sinfulness like everybody else, including, you know, the ordained and religious and so forth. But I do appreciate also the sentiment where there's a different pattern of life, a different kind of uh, sequence, a different sort of rhythm as you were talking about how there have been adjustments in your own family's rhythm of life. So, you know, the one thing I would say is that this is something actually that, you know, I belong to the Franciscan friars as a, as a mendicant, which is kind of a category of religious life. We are by nature itinerant. That was part of Francis of Assisi's vision as it was, you know, Dom, Dominic Guzman who founded the, the uh, order of preachers, the Dominicans was that, you know, you'd be out in the world with people in the town squares at the universities, you know, in, in the public places and preaching and teaching and ministering and, and, and working with, with ordinary folks, you know, everybody. And yet there was still structure. You begin the day to together with prayer, you end the day together with prayer, there's at least one meal together shared and so forth. And so there is a rhythm, but because we're itinerant, you know, this is actually very unusual for us too. We're not monastic communities. We're not monks. Um, You know, apostolic women's religious communities are not nuns. They're not cloistered. They're meant to be in the world and serving others and living lives very similar actually to our lay brothers and sisters in the professional sphere. And so actually, I and I think a lot of my, you know, brother and sister religious have been looking to our monastic confreres and consors who live inside more or less, you know, or inside the confined walls of uh, of a space, even with a yard, perhaps, but spend decades upon decades upon decades in one place, in in one little cell, their room, in, in one in some small common spaces, in in the same chapel, in the same seat in the chapel for decades on end. Um, so, you know, I, there have been a number of articles that have circulated about advice from cloistered religious about what it's like to be in isolation, as it were. I will confess that, that is not my vocation. That's why I'm not a monk. Uh, so I struggle with it, I think, in a way analogous to you and, and many of our friends and colleagues and, and many of our listeners. So I, all, that's a long-winded way of saying I don't have a particular 
you know, kind of instruction in terms of how to live one's life in the time of coronavirus. I will say this, though, because it's something I wrote about in, in our Patreon supporters who listen to the column commentaries will have already heard about this. But my, my, my last column for NCR, I focus on the importance of the communion of saints in thinking about, and, and in particular, the Holy Spirit in thinking about our faith and the practice of our faith in this age of quarantine and this age of self-isolation, because there's a way in which, as tragic as it is that we're not able to gather in person to celebrate the sacraments as the body of Christ, nevertheless, God remains close to us, particularly as Spirit draws near to us, as St. Augustine says, is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. So I, on a practical, emotional, physical scale. You know, my recommendation is something I've been trying to follow, which is having a routine, trying to kind of create a sense of normalcy in these unusual times, like you've been saying, but also spiritually to be more attentive to the role of the Holy Spirit and how we are, as Lumen Gentium paragraph 13 says, how the scattered though we are throughout the world, all the baptized are united to one another in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I know this is incredibly painful for many people who are quarantined from loved ones, even in their own homes, if somebody's showing symptoms or separated. You know, you and I are, are friends. We live in the same neighborhood. We're only a couple blocks apart, but, you know, here we are remotely. And I'm sure this is the same experience you and, and uh, Kira and the kids are experiencing with your your, par- uh, your parents-in-law, the the grandparents for everybody's health and safety, needing that increased distance. And so there is some solace, I believe. There's there's an opportunity for prayer and reflection and thinking about how, though we are physically distant, we are intimately connected, and that connection is made possible by the gift of God's self and spirit. I, I appreciate that answer. I, I appreciate especially the sentiment that started the question by looking to you for for wisdom and you say well I'm actually looking to the more cloistered members <laughs> for wisdom <laughs> I, I love I love the honesty of that and I think we're all we're all realizing that our lives had a kind of pseudo structure and now we're we're getting down to what the actual structures of our lives need to be and that's something good for all of us to reflect on well let's get into the conversation we'll take a short break and then we'll come back in just a moment you're listening to the Francis effect I'm David Dalt I'm I'm here virtually with my good friend father Dan Haran and we'll be back in just a moment Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks we get together in person or virtually. And here we are virtually. As we just talked about in the opening dialogue, as we, as we are checking in with each other and catching up on things, we are not united physically in the studio at the Lutheran School of Theology. We are united by the Holy Spirit, separated though we are. Speaking of being separated, our first topic today that we're going to look at is the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 situation in which we find ourselves today. You may notice that we don't have the smooth introduction or toppers, as they say, in the field. And that is in part because, well, both David and I forgot (laughs) in preparation for this. We'll just be honest with you, our listeners, because this is a very unusual time and we're figuring this out as we go. And so there is full transparency for you. But The situation is simply this. Over the last six weeks, particularly in the U.S., but we've seen globally, there has been a rise of the COVID-19 illness. It's caused by a novel coronavirus, 
which is causing havoc uh, uh, across the world and has been labeled by the World Health Organization as a pandemic. Just in the last few days and immediate weeks, uh, this has hit the shores of the United States, and there have been hotspots, including Washington State, California, Louisiana, and most notably New York City, where there are extraordinary numbers of those infected and those who are dying. It is a terribly frightening time. It is a situation unlike anything that anyone who is living right now has experienced before. And we are here trying to make sense of that as much as anybody else. David, where do we even begin with this? Well, it's you've said so much already. It's overwhelming to think about all the ways in which this has changed kind of normal life and particularly normal economic life. And one of the things that this is bringing to the fore is, you know, Pope Francis talks about not making a god of the economy. And we are seeing right now the straining points of those who are really having a difficulty letting go of this idol. As we're taping this just yesterday, Donald Trump was tweeting and talking about by Easter, and I'm not sure why Easter is a significant day for him other than it's a big holiday, but by Easter wanting to get the economy back going, which means for him lifting the shelter-in-place requirements and lifting the restrictions on gathering that have been in place and have been helping to keep these numbers from getting even larger than they already are. I'll be honest with you, that is probably the thing that terrifies me the most, is that the idea that for the purposes of some idea of what the economy should be doing, we would put an inordinate number of people at risk for the sake of some false normalcy. And so I think that's where my desire to begin this conversation is, is with the stark reality that we're in a moment that is unprecedented. So my wife's grandmother, my, my children's great-grandmother, is 101 years old. She was born in the year of the last great pandemic, the flu, in 1919. And we were talking in, as a family about the fact that there is no one living who has a real robust memory of what conditions have been like under a pandemic. We just haven't seen it. SARS was not like this. Not even AIDS had the same kind of rapid onset and infection rate that we're seeing here. You know, we're, we're really trying to make this up as we go along. And I've been, frankly, very disappointed with some of the leadership that we've seen, not at the state level. I mean, here in Illinois and in some other states, I think that we've seen good leadership. But at the federal level in particular, it's almost like the hand is off the rudder. And I don't know if that's been your perception. What have, what have you been seeing? Yeah, I agree entirely. In fact, you know, I've been very impressed by the governors of Washington State, Jay Inslee, or Gavin Nissim in California, our own uh, J.B. Pritzker here in, in Illinois, and of course, Andrew Cuomo in, in New York, among others, although there have been some, including the governor of Oklahoma, who have demonstrated, I would say, a radical incompetence at best, that's the polite way of putting it, and in a malicious, misanthropic sort of uh, kind of cavalier attitude at, at worst. Um, I don't think he desires to harm people, but people may recall, and you can look at this in, in terms of uh, the Google machine, you can go back and find uh, stories about the fact that he was encouraging his citizens in the state of Oklahoma to go out and dine and, and shop and do these kinds of things when it was already very apparent, at least to public health officials, that this was 
an incredibly dangerous, infectious, and um, real threat to people. We've seen that as well in terms of some states like the state of Florida that was very slow to close the beaches down during spring break. So it's true. I mean, I think on the state level, it's been very hit or miss. But I think you're right to say that in certainly in the states that have been most hard hit by this, and that's generally a result of population density. And those states have been fortunate to have good leadership. At the national level, it's been an absolute goat rodeo. It's been an absolute cluster. And it's not surprising. I've seen some criticism of some of the public health officials. I think of Dr. Anthony Fauci, for instance, and people are saying, and I think wrong, wrongly, wrongheadedly, that people like him should take the microphone at these pressers daily at the White House and correct the president or, or talk him down or something as if to speak truth to power. This is not the time for that. I think I, I, I just will be very blunt about the fact that I have such tremendous respect for Anthony Fauci long before he became the kind of darling of, of social media in the world today. I had the opportunity to meet him about 10 years ago when I was on faculty at Siena College, and we gave him an honorary doctorate in, in recognition in, in no small part uh, because of his pioneering work during the HIV-AIDS crisis in the 80s. Again, working under a Republican administration, that time it was the Reagan administration, where Ronald Reagan took almost six years before he even uttered in public the word AIDS. And so, you know, Fauci knows how to deal with people who are in, in an alternative universe in La La Land who are concerned more about their political advantages than they are about the health and safety of the public. That said, I think the Trump administration is a new level of incompetence. I mean, I'm just going to be very blunt about that. I don't know how anyone could look at what the Trump administration is doing. And by administration, I mean the political appointees and figures, not the you know, the bureaucrats and the kind of the women and men who are nonpartisan, like Dr. Fauci and others, who, by the way, have served under presidents and administrations of both parties. But when we look at the kind of contradictory, you know, statements that somebody like Trump is making, and some of his surrogates, it's it's deeply, it's frustrating, to say the least, it's deeply concerning. And you named the most recent as of this recording, you know, every day, it's a new crisis. But the most recent has been this reference to trying to get everybody back to work by Easter, which is the wrong approach. Let's see what happens in terms of the public health crisis in responding to the disease, not setting some arbitrary date. Two comments about this, and then I'll toss it back to you. One is, you know, there, there's a, a political commentator that I'm uh, a fan of who <laughs> likes to remind folks uh, on his podcast that the coronavirus does not watch Fox News. Like the, the coronavirus does not care about your political affiliation or what sort of nonsense and, and uh, kind of craziness and foolishness comes out of the mouth of somebody like Donald Trump. The coronavirus, as we learned this morning, uh, you know, through uh, international headlines, does not care if you're part of the royal family or the heir apparent to, you know, the, the throne in England because Prince Charles has coronavirus right now. And this is an incredibly serious and unprecedented moment. The last thing I'll say is on this Easter nonsense, there is a, a colleague of ours, a theologian who I saw on Twitter. He teaches at a, at a university in Scotland. He made this point as a commentary to this Easter uh, announcement of Trump's. He's like, well, it's not clear to me which Easter Trump is talking about. Is he talking about the Catholic Easter, the Orthodox Easter, which is a different date? Is he talking about some sort of arbitrary new Easter that would be an ecumenically acceptable, you know, agreed upon compromise? Like, what is this? So, I mean, 
that's that made me laugh a little bit. It's something that only maybe theologians and liturgists would appreciate, but um, but it's very serious, very troubling. Well, so first of all, I think that you're spot on to say that messaging right now is a real grave concern, and messaging I mean that in two ways. One, the ability for misinformation to cut through the noise and really be heard, and I'm thinking about the people who literally drank pool cleaner, ingested pool cleaner because Trump said that chloroquine was going to be a good cure for this. And they later said, as one died and the other was recovering in the hospital, said he said it would cure us. And so misinformation cuts through. While I think that you're also right that the right information, the clear messaging that we would need to actually help us get into the the right frame of mind has not been coming from the top. So messaging is a problem. But I also want to talk about infrastructure. And I'm thinking in particular about a paragraph from the Catechism, paragraph 2440. And it says, direct aid is an appropriate response to an immediate extraordinary need caused by natural catastrophes, epidemics, and the like, but it does not suffice to repair the grave damage resulting from destitution or to provide a lasting solution to a country's needs. It is necessary to reform international economic and financial institutions so that they will better promote equitable relationships with less advanced countries. Now that's talking about country to country, but one of the things that coronavirus and COVID-19 is showing us here in America is the gross inequities in infrastructure that we have here now. People who are coming to emergency rooms and ICUs exhibiting symptoms cannot get tested, but ball teams and famous people, we know their status, even though they may not have been showing symptoms. It's the the disproportionate response to those that are famous or rich or who have power and those that, that really need the response, the vulnerable not being able to get it. That's of concern to me too. And so what should Catholics be thinking right now in terms of the structures and institutions of our country and the failures that we're seeing uh, sort of laid bare at this moment? That's a great question. And, you know, the thing that I would say in response is the thing that I've been saying and praying for all along. You know, we just celebrated the Eucharist as a community this morning in our chapel. Again, it's a private liturgy, just to make that clear. It's not open to the public. It's just for the six friars who live here. And I'm the only priest in the community, so as long as I'm I'm healthy and we're well and it's safe for us to do this, we'll continue to do that. But one of the prayers during our intercessions uh, that we made is prayer for civil leaders. And it's a, it's a prayer that all civil leaders and those responsible for the care of peoples and government representatives be open to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in protecting and promoting the common good. And I've said it before on this podcast, I'll say it again to my dying day, that the common good, as as the church teaches in, in uh, Gaudium et Spes, as it teaches in its social teaching and doctrine, and in our moral teaching makes clear that the purpose of government is the promotion and protection of the common good. And I think that's how Catholics need to be thinking about this. This is not about an individual benefit. It's not even about a majority benefit. And this is some of the language you hear tossed about by the absolutely abhorrent rhetoric around the stock market and letting old people, quote unquote, die. The kind of absolutely appalling commentary that I've seen uh, reported from speakers on places like Fox News and elsewhere that have talked about, well, you know, there are many grandparents who'd be happy to die for their children's economic future. It is the most disgusting thing I think I've heard in a very, very long time. And anyone who identifies as Catholic who believes that, who promotes that, who thinks about that needs to realize that they're committing a sin. That is not a pro-life attitude. That is, you know, that is a, it's not even a utilitarian attitude because, um, yeah, yeah, this, what affects 
you know, the, the least among us affects all of us. And it's just startling to me. I don't know, David, what your sense of that is, but I've just been so appalled. I mean, the blatant hypocrisy of people who claim to be pro-life, who are talking about this sort of thing because they see their 401k decreasing or their investments declining or that the possibility of a future payout is decreasing. Newsflash, the poorest of the poor in our society who are still globally considered not that poor, nevertheless, this is not a concern for them. People who live paycheck to by, by paycheck are not concerned about these stock payouts and so forth and how the Dow is doing. You know, Again, I go back to this, this kind of tongue-in-cheek reference that the coronavirus does not watch Fox News, does not listen to Donald Trump. And we see that with people like Rand Paul. We see that with, with others who have tested positive for coronavirus. It's coming for everybody. There's so much there that you just said. And in particular, and I'm thinking about the lieutenant governor who said that grandparents would be happy to die so that the economy could support the younger among us. First By of the all, way, I just want to say... I have no affiliation with him, though he has, his name is Dan Patrick, he's Lieutenant <laughs> Governor of Texas, and my name is also Daniel Patrick, <laughs> but I don't approve of that. And, and I will be honest, it's hard for me to imagine a charitable way of interpreting a comment like that, but if, I, if I'm able to assume that it comes from a place of good intention, I'm reminded that paragraph 1753 of the Catechism reminds us that good intentions do not make behavior that is intrinsically disordered, such as murder, suddenly a good thing. And it goes on to say the end doesn't justify the means. We have to remember that the economy is largely a fiction, and it's a fiction that benefits us, and it's a fiction that we buy into most of the time. And I say benefits us, it doesn't benefit everyone. And right now we're seeing the limits of that fiction. We're seeing the limits of the ability of that narrative to sustain us. And we're realizing that we may need to replace that at least for a time and maybe forever with a better story. But there are some among us that love the narrative. They love the story so much that they're willing to let massive numbers of people die in order to maintain the fiction, to insist that the emperor has clothes when he's actually naked. But let's be honest, the the extremity of this situation is showing us that we have a system that doesn't feed everyone. It doesn't house everyone. It doesn't, it doesn't provide sustenance and resources and health, the things that the Catholic teaching tells us are basic rights of human beings because they're created in the image of God. We're not providing these things generally to portions of our population, and right now we're unable to provide these things. If we maintain the, the system that we've had, we, we will be unable to provide these things to the majority of citizens in, in the United States. And certainly this is not just a United States problem, it's a world problem. Now, with that being said, there are some, like this lieutenant governor, who I, I'm going to assume the best of intentions, want to maintain the, the, the fiction because they believe that the, that the fiction is the best answer. I think that Catholic teaching gives us much better answers than the fiction of the marketplace. And, and that, that's, you asked what I was thinking. That's really what's on my mind. How about you? Yeah, I agree 100%. And I will give maybe a little bit of theological voice to what it is you're describing. And that is, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly on this notion of a fiction. It's true. The term itself, economy, comes from oikos nomos, which, which has to do with how we structure or order or organize the household. Um, it's oftentimes used in reference to kind of fiscal policy and finance, but it's broader than that. And in fact, I wrote about this a couple of weeks back 
where taking, for instance, the post-synodal uh, exhortation from Pope Francis on the Amazon Synod and Laudato Si, and we look at these themes, this call for an integral ecology, this way of talking about and thinking about the household as all things are tied together and related, I said that that leads us to naturally you know, embrace an integral economy. That's that's the kind of the direction we should be heading in. And I like this idea of an integral economy because it speaks to a more truthful expression of what you're describing, which is that we're all connected. Everybody has inherent dignity and value. And it's it's not just the human population, it's the non-human world as well, that, that we're in one family of creation. So it could be considered more broadly, but right now we're looking at kind of the human family's ordering of our household, of our structure in, in terms of the economy. And I think you're right. You know, I'm, I'm hoping maybe one positive way to look at this is that the an outcome can be that, you know, basically that we realize this emperor's new clothes fiction that you're talking about. The economy, the way we've ordered our household has been corrupted, has always been corrupt. You know, capitalism as such is not a good in itself. This is something that John Paul II, who is a champion against communism, it's something Benedict XVI, it's something that Pope Francis has reiterated over and over again in the, in the church's social teaching. We do not hold to a free market that is not a Catholic view, and people who you know want to argue otherwise, like your friends at the Acton Institute, I say your friends because you often are the one who the one who brings them up. It's baloney. It's absolute nonsense, and it's actually uh, anti-Catholic, and it's it's nowhere in my register, Christian. I think that we've we've come to a good place to leave the discussion at the moment, and that is with an orientation towards the poor and away from some of the institutions that would leave the poor destitute and in jeopardy. I agree completely. I'm so glad for you to bring in that that notion about oikonomos. I had I had not thought about that, but that's exactly right. We are a household of the human family, and we have to think about how we are ordering the human family right now. And we're going to be continuing our discussion of the effects of COVID-19 as this program continues, but we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about events in the news and the world through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. And we're continuing our discussion of COVID-19, and I, I want to start this discussion by asking a question that a dear friend of mine sent to me. This is from my friend Bill Adams, who is probably my longest time friend in the world. He and I uh, got to be friends in pre-kindergarten, <laughs> which is a long wow. time ago at this point. But he sent me a theological question. He said, David, why are churches stopping communion? I mean, if the blessing is enough to transform crappy port wine and pita bread into the blood and body of Christ. Presumably it can handle a little disinfection at the same time. Inquiring minds want to know. And yes, he was writing that to me in some somewhat of a flippant tone, but I think the, the heart of that is a confusion that has been shared by a lot of the faithful. Have masses stopped? And if masses are the kind of powerful healing balm that we have been saying that they are, why are we not doing more of them, not less of them? I think that's where I want to start right now. So a couple things. I, I appreciate the question, uh, and it's nice to hear the the name Bill Adams is in the William Adams Studios that that we regularly uh, are in, and I look forward to when we can return there again. The very one, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So 
first of all, masses have not stopped. I think that's important for people to realize. And you can see that um, with the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, who's continuing to celebrate mass on a daily basis with a very small kind of skeleton crew. These are, again, are people who uh, generally live with him. These are other priests, um, some religious sisters who live in the Vatican walls. And so it's not a public liturgy in the sense that people come in physically into the chapel, but it's been live streamed by the Vatican uh, media services, which is very cool. And you can check that out daily. Likewise, I mentioned earlier that we're continuing to celebrate Mass here in this religious community, and there are religious communities around the world in which that's taking place. Even at local parishes, a lot of uh, local pastors and priests, diocesan priests, have been celebrating particularly the Sunday liturgy and live streaming that so that folks can connect to that as well. But your your friend's point is is well put in terms of the practical, you know, sort of appearance and the practical significance of of not physically going and celebrating the sacraments, which is an important thing for Catholics because we are a sacramental people. We are, you know, there's a physical, grounded, corporeal sense to what we do. It is as the patristic theologians in the third and fourth century said and repeated in the Middle Ages, you know, that God takes ordinary things like wheat and water and and grapes and wine and and transforms them into, uh, you know, the the media by which God's sacramental presence is made made clear to us, made available to us. So I understand that. The, the other thing I have to say in response to the, the question about, well, if this is because we've heard this from even well, uh, people who should know better, I'll put it that way, people like right now a cardinal who has no official position, he's a cardinal, he's still a bishop, and I'm referring to Cardinal Raymond Burke, he, it's important for people to realize he is not an ordinary, he has no ordinary authority or pastoral responsibility, and that is deliberate, it's, it's something that's been slowly removed from him, in part because of this kind of craziness in which he's expressing, uh, arguing that people should be able to gather in mass, uh, for mass, no pun intended, or to have public processions outside, you know, with exposition of the Eucharist or these sorts of things. Another the editor, uh, the current editor of First Things Magazine has been saying similar sorts of things, much more economically driven than anything else. But, you know, there, there are people who are arguing for this. And the claim is similar to the presupposition that comes, as I understand it, from Bill Adams's question, which is, if this is really God's work in the world, you know, what are we afraid of? Isn't this part of the solution and not the problem? And okay. it's, it's a kind of magical thinking, isn't it? Well, a that's notion. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. That's exactly my point, which is the sacraments are not magic. The Eucharist is not magic. God is not magic. You know, the people who view this way of, of thinking about the sacraments, for instance, or about faith, are the same people who believe in a God who helicopters in, you know, and performs miracles in some kind of extraordinary way. Yeah. Does God perform miracles? Does God, is God capable of doing things that go against the laws of nature and so forth? Absolutely. But it is foolish to think that we as human beings, and heretical to think that we can compel God to do anything, and that there are a couple things to say as well, including, for instance, the fact that you know we have been given this gift of intellect and reason as co-creators with God in this world, and one of the things that has resulted from that gift of intelligence and reason has been sources of human knowledge like medical science and public health officials, and the stuff that public health officials have been sharing. So I think a rejection of that wisdom is a rejection of the gift of intelligence and reason that God has given us individually, but also collectively as a society. So um, I think it's important, it's incumbent on us to realize that we can't compel God, 
that that our faith is not magic. And and I think a uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Father James Martin, uh, said this well in a piece that he wrote both in the New York Times and wrote a piece for America Magazine. And others have said this as well, too, which is to recognize where is God in the midst of this crisis, pandemic, and suffering? God is there with us, suffering with us. God accompanies us. And it supports what I was saying earlier, too, about about God's presence as spirit drawing near to us. And also our challenge and our responsibility and our great gift as members of the body of Christ that and members of the community of saints that we should be in solidarity with one another. And this raises, I think, an important point that is also been kind of bandied about and needs some clarification. So in the time of the Black Death, you know, we, we hear the story that Christians stayed behind and basically martyred themselves to care for the sick. And there's a notion that somehow, well, they were macho Christians and they really believe their faith, but now we're cowering in our homes and we're not actually being bold for the faith the way that they were bold for the faith. Some things about that that I want to say. First of all, caring for the sick is the operative formula here in both cases. And the question is, how does one in a given context care for the sick? And for something like bubonic plague or pneumonic plague, there were ways that you could, given the limited science of the time, that you could care for the sick, and it might put you at personal risk, but you you could cause uh, a person who was suffering to have more comfort rather than less in their final moments, and that was seen as a beneficent good. We are being told by all the authorities who have the knowledge and the depth of knowledge to sort of understand how epidemics work, what we're being told right now is that the best way to care for the vulnerable and the sick among us is not to go and tend to their wounds because they don't have wounds, but rather to socially distance from themselves and from others so that we might not create more opportunity for the sickness to spread. In both cases, the formula that is operating is care for the sick. And it's not some kind of macho ritual that you have to go and you have to get your Eucharist and or otherwise your batteries run out. And, and this, I think, is a powerful thing for people to understand is that if your bishop is saying to you that the requirement to attend Mass physically is suspended, that doesn't mean that your bishop has suddenly become a heretic. It means that your bishop is trying to be a good shepherd to all of the flock and to protect who the bishop is supposed to protect, which is the poor and the vulnerable among us. And it's important to remember again that the Eucharist is not the only way God draws near to us. You know, it's not, this is, this is a, kind of a neo-Thomist caricature that grace is something that's only dispensed in the sacramental setting of of the church and its rituals. And I'm not denying that it is. I'm just saying that it's not the only way that the church has always taught and continues to teach that grace in the first instance is always the Holy Spirit, the gift of God's self. So people need to keep that in mind. The other thing that I think is important to remember about the 14th century and other periods in history that have been referenced as sort of a touchstone for how we should be acting today is in the 14th century, they didn't have medical science. They did not know what was causing these diseases. There was no understanding of germs and uh, epidemiology and this kind of stuff. But also, in even in 1918, 1919, with the Spanish flu, the progress of medical science was so different from where we are today. I mean, it, it's, it's like we're living in a different world even from a century ago. 
And I think that that is a vincible form of, or an invincible form of ignorance, rather, back in the 14th century, that it was justifiable. It is not a justifiable form of ignorance today. We know better. And people who are in a public position or have a, a public platform, even if they don't have authority, and this is the case of somebody like Burke, they should know better. And it's, it's again, I will say this, that their sort of admonitions, their encouraging of people to risk individual's health and safety and the health and safety of others is a violation of the common good and is actually, you know, leading to people harming themselves and potentially harming others. That is sinful. I can't, I can't stress that enough. Well, and I want to, I want to say to my fellow laypersons because there's often confusion about this. If your local bishop suspends the necessity of being present in mass, and there's a bishop either in some other see or in a titular see who says that you have to go to mass, the authority that governs you is your local bishop. You listen to your local bishop. I can't stress that enough that it, it's not a, this is not a roulette wheel. It's not a matter of picking and choosing the bishop who is conservative enough for your tastes, and so you go with that bishop. Catholicism doesn't work that way. We have the authority of our local bishop who gathers the church, and we depend on that local bishop to give us the protection and to tell us the proper way to receive the sacraments and to and to relate to one another within that diocese. And that's an important piece of this. I think there are people who are almost bishop shopping at this point, and that's been a problem for a long time, but particularly in moments like this, they go looking for the bishop on the internet that says the thing that they most want to hear, and they say, ah, yes, that's real Catholicism. And I, I think that that's, that's a dangerous form of ignorance in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, this is where there are real ecclesiological consequences, you know, uh, or there are real consequences to our ecclesiology is a better way to think about it. And why, you know, it's important for people to understand how church authority works that and how sacraments work. It goes back to your friend's question. It is not magic. It is not, you know, some kind of, again, magic is something that we accomplish, something that we do. And that is, by definition, heresy. You know, God is the one who works. You know, as I like to remind my students and and their sacramental theology professors I know do as well, it, it's this point, you know, when you ask the question, if I'm celebrating a baptism, who baptizes? The answer is Christ. When I celebrate the Eucharist, who's the one who is is making the sacramental presence of Christ present? Christ is. Christ is the one who works through us and through the church. We do not make that happen. So I have, uh, as we're drawing the, the discussion to a close, I have a kind of practical question. For a layperson who may have heard this term, making spiritual communion, is there a particular thing or a particular prayer that the layperson needs to say? Is it a desire of the heart? How how does spiritual communion work? Yeah, that's a really great question. There is not a particular prayer, though there are a number of prayers that have been authored. Some of them go back to the 18th and 19th centuries. Some of them are more contemporary. You know, you don't need anything formal. What it what it really means is it's a reference to what you were describing a second ago, which is a desire of the heart. It's it's some sort of acknowledgement of the desire to be in communion with the sacramental presence of Christ and with Christ more broadly in a particular way that's not that one's not able to do for a variety of reasons oftentimes it's because people are you know homebound or infirmed or something like this and don't have access to communion uh, or or are unable themselves to to go to to mass i think what it really entails is an opportunity for lay people and and non-lay people as well to 
to reflect again on a few elements of our faith. One is the Holy Spirit. One is Christ's presence in the world. Um, the fact that through the communion of saints, we're united to each other so that when there are liturgies going on, that, that we are connected to what's being celebrated there, what's happening there. And then to, you know, I think there are a number of different rituals. And I think there are a number of dioceses that have started putting out little kind of simple programs or little rituals that families can celebrate or individuals can celebrate, you know, including things like creating a little sacred space. So maybe you have some candles or some statuary or, you know, certainly a crucifix or an icon and that you would begin, you know, with the sign of the cross, there would be, you know, a, a lot of things that people can do, a reading of, of sacred scripture, you know, an offering of intentions and prayers, a, a, a form of solidarity around particularly the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, for those who are in, you know, family or or religious community or other kind of community uh, isolation or quarantine, if you're with others, you might offer a kind of sign of peace, um, and that might include the elbow bump or something that is approved by uh, by the CDC and the World Health Organization and so forth. But but the idea there is not a one size fits all. Um, but if you're looking for a ritual, if you're looking for some prayers, there there are a number of resources available online. Well, that's a good place for us to leave the discussion right now. This is The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan. In addition to our regular commentaries on news and events, this season we've also been taking the third segment of our episodes to talk about the sacraments of the Catholic Church and to really kind of do deep dives into them. And we thought that it would be appropriate this week, given all of the talk about COVID-19, to talk about a sacrament that frankly confuses me because in part because it goes by so many different names. I have heard it referred to as the anointing of the sick. I have heard it referred to as last rites. I have heard it referred to by the tricky name extreme unction. And so I'm going to ask you, Father Dan, to help me unpack what it means to have this sacrament that is is it supposed to only be delivered when someone is dying? Can it be delivered when someone is ill? What is this sacrament and what is its function within the church? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that confuses a lot of people because of the way that it had been understood, certainly before the renewal of the Second Vatican Council, where you go back to the sources, where you have an updating, not just to kind of modernize, which is a misconception of the of the ecumenical council, but rather to restore to its fullness what the sacraments mean. There are a number of different terms, some of which are synonyms, some of which are misnomers. So you have, for instance, extreme unction, which is uh, basically an anglicized form of the Latin that refers to the last anointing or final anointing. Extreme is an extremis means kind of the outermost point, and unction simply means to anoint. In the celebration of the sacraments, there are n numerous anointings that take place over time. At baptism, you're anointed. You're you're anointed at confirmation. If you're ordained, uh, you're anointed uh, in, in holy orders, as I have. And so, you know, you see this at, at various points in, in the life of the church. And so for a long time, extreme unction is, is simply to refer to the last anointing. That's oftentimes used synonymously before the council with the so-called last rites. Last rites is a little bit confusing because technically 
any celebration of the sacraments, that's one's last is their last rites. And so you can go to confession, you can receive the anointing of the sick, you can go to mass, you can be baptized, whatever you, whatever, what have you, if that happens, whatever happens before your death is technically the last rites. Though that had been understood that extreme unction, the last anointing would be the last rites. And for a number of reasons we don't have time to get into in the period between the 13th century and the 20th century, there had been sort of a... I would say an atrophying of the theology, uh, a misunderstanding of the anointing of the sick. That phrase I keep using, the anointing of the sick, is the official title. That is the name of the sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church. It is, you know, it, it refers to exactly what what's in the name, and that that's as a result of Pope Paul VI in 1972, the promulgation of the new ritual for the anointing of the sick after the Council. It's exactly what it says. It is an anointing. For any of those who are are sick, it could be mental illness, it can be a physical illness, it does not have to be a terminal illness, it does not have to be for somebody who is close to death, it can be people for a variety of reasons. I've got some anecdotes I can share about the celebration of the anointing of the sick, but I'll I'll just leave it there in terms of, of the titular question. We don't talk about last rites, we don't talk about extreme unction, though there are some people who continue to use it. It's incredibly misleading because it makes it sound like it's reserved only for those on their deathbed. Well, and I want to get to those anecdotes, but on the way to that, I want to ask a couple of practical linking questions. So we said in the last segment, and we've said often on this show, that the sacraments are not magic, and we're not talking about some kind of magical intervention where God comes at our beckoning and shifts the normal functioning of the world. At the same time, in the in the Gospels, we get accounts of Jesus miraculously healing the sick, and the the way that I understand it is that Jesus passed that power on to the apostles and that that power somehow still stays with us today. So when a person goes to be anointed and they are sick and they are asking for some kind of healing, what should be the expectation of the layperson who is receiving that chrismation at that moment? They shouldn't be expecting a miraculous turnaround of their illness. What should be their right-sized expectation? Yeah, so that's really important. Again, it's it's not magic. It's not a, a spell that is cast to recapitulate somebody into some sort of standard of whole, wholeness or healthiness. Healing means a lot of different things, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Healing can be a healing physically, for sure, um, and we can talk about as a wound heals over time uh, through medical intervention or on its own. You can talk about the healing of a bone that's been set after broken, being broken. You can talk about healing in terms of one's peace of mind. You can talk about healing in terms of turmoil in one's life emotionally or psychically. Uh, you can talk about spiritual healing, about the, the angst or struggle somebody has, the feeling of distance or brokenness one might have in relationship to God or others. Healing is a multivalent uh, concept, and, and its polyvalence is really important in thinking about the sacrament. The church is very clear. We do not say that the anointing of the sick is for miraculous healing. That is not its purpose. Its purpose is manifold. On the one hand, its purpose is, again, a recognition, an acknowledgement of God who is always already drawing near to the individual who's being anointed even in their pain and suffering, even in their uh, brokenness or their in their desire for healing. It is a sign of solidarity and ministry of the church accompanying this person. Again, it touches on a lot of different things here. Um, the, the late 
great Jesuit theologian, Karl Rahner, who was deeply influential at the Second Vatican Council, used to describe the sacraments, and I think very well this way, that they are uh, visible manifestations of that which is always already present. I'm paraphrasing here. And what he means is that we live in a world of grace where God is present to us as spirit. God draws near to us in the church. The gift of grace is always already extended. And what the sacraments do is not hocus pocus magic, as we've been saying quite a bit today, but rather it is making visible, it's making manifest that which is always already present. So you don't need to be a recipient of the anointing of the sick to have God draw near to you. God is always already drawing near to you. But through the prayers, through the anointing, through the ritual itself, there is a coming to an awareness. There is a a dedicated focus on what is happening in terms of the divinity. So like, if I can share with you the prayer, the priest says, you know, there are two anointings today on the forehead and on the, the hands, the inside of the hands. And the prayer that the priest says, making the sign of the cross with the oil is through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Let me pause there. See, see, it's everything I've already said, right? Through this anointing, may God, it's God who's working, Christ, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing here about, may you be healed in a physical way, may you recover from this illness, may you blah, blah, blah. That's not part of the prayer. And then the second part of the prayer is, may the Lord who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. It's a beautiful eschatological prayer. You know, I remember when I was studying, when I was in the seminary, as, as we might say, you know, now more than long, way more than a decade ago, time flies. I remember my, my professor saying, and I thought this was really true, that, that there are some prayers in the rites of the church, the R-I-T-E-S of the church, that say it all that do it all. I think of two in particular, and these are the two sacraments of healing. One is the anointing of the sick. One is the sacrament of penance, of confession. And in both of those prayers, it's again, not about our trying to command something from God, but a calling to mind of the mercy, love, healing, presence, nearness of God in our lives. You know, the the prayer of absolution is so beautiful to me because it recounts the whole of salvation history. And if I may, if I can just share that, you know, it begins, you know, God, the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son has reconciled the world to himself and sent among us the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. By the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. There's this notion of I absolve you. Right. But but that opening line is a, is a kind of like a one line recounting of salvation history as I'm kind of paraphrasing this off the top of my head. Right. You know, this. Well, actually, I'm not paraphrasing that first part, but I, I kind of lost my train of thought in the second part. But the point the point I want to emphasize is also with this anointing, it's so simple. It's two lines. Through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin, save you and raise you up. Not today, not in 10 minutes. Not in any set time, but it's it's this eschatological affirmation of faith. And you mentioned a moment ago that you had a couple of anecdotes to to illustrate this. I'd, I'd be interested if you're willing to share them, to hear one or two of them. Yeah. So there have been instances in which I've been called upon to celebrate the sacrament of the anointing of the sick to those who are near their death. And in that case, it, it is quite literally an extreme unction, right? It's the last anointing. Sometimes people are able to receive communion, and, and our listeners may have heard this Latin term viaticum as well. And viaticum is just a Latin word that says, with us for the journey. And viaticum is typically associated with the communion, the, the Eucharist that people receive, the Blessed Sacrament, 
you know, at the last time. And it is for the journey, it is food for the journey, as it were, into the next life. But the truth is, there's a broader conception of that too, which is, you know, Peter Lombard in the 12th century, and you have uh, folks like Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure in the 13th century, and other great doctors of the church have pointed out that the Eucharist is, as Pope Francis often says, not a reward for the good. It's not a gift for the holy and perfect. It is food for the journey. It is a healing remedy. And this is where those who are able to receive communion while ill, and if people are able to, you know, ministers who bring communion to the sick, for instance, that can be lay people as well. They can't celebrate the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, but they can offer viaticum, right? They can offer the Eucharist as food for the journey. And there's a beautiful prayer the uh, service that comes with that, even you know, for lay people to be ministers of that sacrament. I was in high school, and uh, when I was in high school, I brought communion for about a year and a half to a woman in my neighborhood who was dying of cancer and died my senior year in high school, and and it was very I, I considered a privilege and an honor and, and a humbling experience to have been with her on a weekly basis. I was on Sunday afternoons. I was working at my home parish at the time as a sacristan, and I would lock up the church and everything, and I would take the picks, which is the little, oftentimes gold or silver receptacle, the little kind of canister in which one travels out of respect with with the Blessed Sacrament. That was always deeply moving, and for her, it was incredibly moving too, despite her pain and her suffering, to be able to receive the Eucharist as as food for journey, as a, as a healing remedy. Did it heal her of the side effects of you know, the chemotherapy and the way that we might think of healing in a colloquial sense, the answer is absolutely not. But did it heal her her heart and mind and soul, her spirit? The answer is yes. And it was very meaningful. It was meaningful to me. It stays with me to this day. I remember after being ordained, I've, going back to anointing of the sick, um, I, some parishes have monthly celebrations of the anointing of the sick. And our uh, local parish here. I know your your home parish, St. Thomas the Apostle, does this, I think, on one of the Sundays of, of the month, where anybody can come up and receive the anointing after the celebration of the Eucharist. And I think that's a wonderful tradition. I think that's great, because it helps to demystify what has been reserved as the last rites for so many years in people's imaginations. And so I was at a parish, my home parish, actually, in upstate New York a number of years ago. And one of my best friends uh, and, and fan of the show, uh, Andrew Neller, he and his wife and their kids were visiting his parents who live not far from where my parents live and happened to be at mass, this mass that I was uh, celebrating at the parish. And it happened to be, I just happened to be in town on a week where it fell that they were doing a similar sort of thing that St. Thomas does, which is after the closing prayer and closing hymn, you know, the priest would stay in the, in the sanctuary and folks who wanted to receive the anointing of the sick would come up and receive it. And so the pastor and I both, we had, you know, two lines and, and we were both anointing uh, the people of God. Well, my friend Andrew came up with his young daughter, who's a couple years old at the time, and she just had a cold. She just had like a little kid flu. And uh, it was a deeply moving experience to be able to anoint, you know, this little three-year-old with with exactly the prayer that we've shared already. And to recognize that this is, it's it's a beautiful uh, sacrament. It's a beautiful rite. And and the meaning of that is is deeply profound. So, not everybody needs to call a priest or a hospital chaplain or something if you have a cold or if you're, you know, you know, th- there's no obligation to do that. But if there is an opportunity, you certainly are welcome to take part in that. And I think that's an important thing for our listeners to know, that the anointing of the sick is not something reserved for your deathbed. I think sometimes family members and even uh, people who are ill 
are very nervous when a priest shows up with the oils because they associate it with the so-called last rites, that they think that, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, or that they're going to be anointed before surgery, and that that's some sort of terrible omen. By all means, it is not. That is not good theology. That's not the teaching of the church. So I think that's important to know. I'm sorry, I, I've kind of been on a soliloquy here, a little monologue. David, you, you say some things. Well, I, I want to draw together some themes that we've had throughout the show, and in particular, we you know we didn't talk about this so much in the earlier segments, but one of the specters hanging over these kinds of institutional inequities that we talked about in an earlier segment is the idea of the rationing of access to health care, and in particular, the idea that there will, and the New England Journal of Medicine has even gone so far as to talk about a lottery in, in terms of access to the basic ways of keeping people alive with ventilators and things like that. And when we're facing inequities, one of the most dangerous things that we can have is an us versus them mentality. And one of the things that I like so much about everything that you've said about the anointing of the sick is that it's not a magical panacea that suddenly creates miraculous healing. Instead, it is a recognition to the community that this person belongs and is important and that their health is a part of the health of the body. And I think that that is such a great starting place for all of us in terms of grounding our approach to something like the massive obstacles that we're facing right now. If we can simply look at a person who is suffering and not think, I'm in competition with you, but rather, you are my brother, you are my sister, we are in this together, and we must find ways together that our family can heal from this, that to me seems the most the most reasonable, but also the most Catholic of approaches. And so, I started out the segment saying that I was confused about the anointing of the sick. You've helped me get some clarification about that, not just in terms of what the sacrament does, but also how the sacrament might be helpful to us in thinking about the present crisis that we're in. So I just want to say, first of all, thank you for for going on that soliloquy because you've actually given me a chance to think about some of the very valuable ways that this sacrament speaks to us today. It's not an obscure and unclear sacrament. It actually has a very clear message for a time such as this. Yeah, I appreciate that. And and I appreciate the opportunity in, in these regular segments we've been doing to kind of demystify and myth bust some of the, the concerns around the sacraments. I also want to highlight, because I don't want to, to miss the opportunity to let our listeners know, too, just to make it very clear, not only does it not have to be a... Uh, sort of extreme unction, a last anointing or the, or, or the last rites or some kind of, you know, uh, mortal or terminal illness or injury. But, you know, it could be for any reason that anyone feels the need for healing. It, it doesn't even have to be a physical manifestation. It could be for mental health reasons and so forth. It, it's a very capacious uh, sacrament. But I also want to reiterate, and or just to make clear, that it's not a one-shot, one-time thing. I think this is a concern a lot of people have. It's like, well, I, you know, I was going in for surgery a number of years ago, and the priest chaplain came and anointed me. Is that a? Is that? Does it still count? You know, is it a one size fits all? And the truth is, you can be anointed many, many times. You can be anointed every day and every week. I don't encourage that. I don't think that's necessary. That becomes a bit odd. But it's 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 something just to ease the minds and hearts of our listeners. You know, this is something that is a regular 
This is something that you can receive um, numerous times throughout your life and for a variety of reasons. The other thing I'll say on the topic of COVID-19, since we're talking about the pandemic as, as the major theme really of this episode, is to mention that this is another area of great pain. It's a great pain for our sisters and brothers who are suffering from uh, COVID-19. It's a great pain for those who are chaplains and, and pastoral ministers, and particularly pastors and priests and bishops, because you know, this is one of those sacraments where there's real physical touch. And I know that's a complicated topic, particularly in the contemporary church, but it's also an important thing because there's a recognition of our corporeality, our bodiliness. Just an interesting historical note that before the Second Vatican Council's renewal and re uh, reform and restor restoration of the, the seven sacraments, there was a lot more anointing. It was like, because this, the symbolism was good which was an anointing of all the different senses, as it were, ears for hearing, eyes for seeing, you know, mouth and nose and hands for touch. It's, it's been simplified and reduced to the forehead and, and to the hands. And that's a beautiful symbol too, because when you're ordained a priest, you're anointed in the hands, you know, when you're ordained a bishop, anointed in the hands. When you are baptized, you're anointed on the forehead. The last thing I'll say by way of uh, anointing of the sick trivia is that there are three oils that are consecrated during during Holy Week by the local bishop. They're consecrated every year. One is chrism, and that is, uh, it has this very beautiful smell. And so if you ever, ever had a baptism of a baby <laughs> or an adult, but uh, particularly babies, parents and godparents notice this, that the, their babies smell like um, like beautiful potpourri or something like that, a very herbal kind of scent. And that has to do with, with the, the mixture, a very particular mixture that's, that's added to the oil that's consecrated for chrism. Chrism is used for baptism. It's also used for holy orders. And when we get to holy orders, I can say more about that. Um, there's a second oil that's consecrated called the oil of catechumens. And that's what's used when, uh, oh, I should say chrism also is is used at, at confirmation. And the oil of catechumens is used in baptism. There's two anointings at baptism, one with chrism, one with, with the oil of catechumens. And then the third has no scent. It's, it's kind of just straight olive oil that's consecrated, and this is the oil of the sick. What's interesting about the, the consecration of the oil of the sick is that any priest, out of necessity, can consecrate oil for that purpose. So that's a little tidbit, you know, there's the priests can't consecrate chrism or the oil of catechumens. There's no need to, those are in the parishes, but in an, in an emergency situation, there are prayers that are included in the right of the anointing of the sick for a priest to take ordinary olive oil from your kitchen, for instance, put it in a little bowl, bless it in a, such a way that it becomes uh, the oil of the sick and can be used for the anointing of the sick. So for those of you who are nerds who like that kind of trivia, I hope that was useful. For those who aren't, my apologies. Well, I'm so thankful to get the chance to talk to you about this, partly because it helps me to understand much better this sacrament that frankly was confusing to me. And so thanks for taking the time. Also, I just want to make sure to say before we depart how how much you have been in my prayers. I'm so thankful for your friendship. I'm looking forward to when we can gather face-to-face -face again, and I, I hope that you continue to be healthy and safe, and I say that also to all of our listeners, that we are praying for you, and that we hope that you continue to be healthy and safe, and that your loved ones are protected during this time, and if you are feeling fearful, know that we are too, and just know that we, we are in this with you in all of this. Yeah. Thank you, David. And I echo the same to you. Um, and I'm grateful for the 
technological ability and the infrastructure that you and I have and for your producing and engineering wizardry, which will make this uh, podcast sound much better than I think uh, a lot of our, our uh, other podcasters may be facing given limitations. So that's all. If this sounds good to you, it's all because of David. If it sounds bad, it's because of coronavirus. That's what I have to say about that. And I want to say one last thing too. We should have talked about this in the introduction, but we got so caught up and understandably so in the pandemic talk. Congratulations to you, David, on your new appointment in a tenure-track position at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University of Chicago. I think we can officially talk about this because they had officially put out the public announcement. We're very excited. That means, you know, for those who've been listening over the years, you know, David has been teaching at IPS kind of on a part-time basis and uh, and has recently uh, been appointed to a permanent position. And so, or I should say full-time position, uh, hopefully to be permanent position. And so we're very excited for you, David, and we celebrate with you and your family. So thank you. Thank you. I am incredibly grateful for that and for your words. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, this has been The Francis Effect. I'm I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran, and we'll be back with you soon. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show not at the William Adams Studios, but in our respective houses here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. Social distancing. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We have production space when we're not social distancing, courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. You can find out more about them at their website, zygoncenter.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us the kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect. We do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. FX Pod, and we appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, keep sheltering in place, but welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes for you to go back and listen to during social distancing. You can find us for six seasons on our website. Thanks for listening.